This is Ibarianax, and this is The Candid Frame. Though it's common today to learn about a photographer because of their blog, podcast, or YouTube channel, that wasn't the case when Trey Radcliffe began posting images and articles on his blog, Stuck in Customs, over a decade ago. He was one of a few creatives who leveraged the power of the internet and social media to create a career unlike anything that had come before. His embracing of HDR for his travel and landscape photography inspired photographers all over the world, but also drew the scorn of many who disliked the look of these heavily processed images. But he managed to create a photographic career that wasn't tied to only a single photographic technique. He has continued to educate and inspire photographers to pursue their passions and lead a creative life. But despite the recognition and acclaim he's received, he struggles, just like anyone else, to find the time to feed his hunger to be creative. I think there's three things that are impossible to schedule for well. Uh, one is having a baby, two is taking a vacation, and three is making time to take photos. There's never a good time for any of it, because you can always make a case, let's wait one more year before we have a baby, then we'll have more money, we'll be more stable, and you get there like, let's wait one more year Humans are not good at, at planning these important things. Same with a vacation. You're like, oh my God, what is it now? It's 2018. Like, should I plan a vacation for September of 2019? 11 months. But that seems ridiculous, right? It seems ridiculous. Say like, oh, I'm going to set aside a week. Because it, it also seems a little selfish. Like, I should probably be working. Let's not talk about vacation. It's same with, with photo time is I do schedule it. Um, like I... After burning, so I schedule Burning Man every year, two weeks blocked out, no matter what. It's easy to look at Trey's work and marvel at the kind of life he's leading, which includes traveling all over the world, making photographs. But as grateful and positive as Trey is about his life and work, there have been times when he struggled to maintain that positive attitude. That was especially the case when his wife was receiving treatment for cancer. He fell into a period of darkness where he struggled to find anything positive in his life and the world. And it was only an encounter with a street musician that changed his perspective. And out of nowhere, this really tall black guy comes out with this bright red zoot suit on and this crazy hat. And it kind of reminded me like, man, black guys get away with anything. They look amazing. He strides across there plops down on the bench and starts belting out this amazing tune on the piano. It was beautiful. His hands were all over the place. He was dancing. I went over there. I was just completely transfixed. And it made me realize that's when I got it. That's when I got it. I was like, this is the opposite of nihilism. This is the, the answer, the antidote to nihilism. And it's creativity. Because as, as you create, it puts all that fog outside of you. I was thinking like during this whole period when I was dealing with my wife stuff, I just wasn't creating very much. And it made me realize that creative people have to create. We'll talk to Trey about why he believes that creativity is an essential part of a healthy life, not only for him, but for others, and how he's come to terms with the haters and the trolls. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, Trey, thanks for doing this. Yes, sir. I'm happy to be with you. We haven't really had the opportunity to have a good, artistic, creative conversation, positive, full of love for the people. So let's do it. It'd be fun. Well, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. It was nice meeting you in Santa Monica all those years ago, though I didn't have the chance to you know, sit down and talk with you properly. Yeah, I feel bad about that because you know, I could tell immediately like you're the kind of guy that I want to talk to more. And sometimes time just gets constrained. I can't make it happen. But I'm glad it's happening now. Well, it's hard when you're surrounded by hundreds of people, all of whom are clamoring for your attention to, you know, talk one-on-one. Yeah, no, but I do honestly feel bad about it because I'm like a real kind of giver. I'm very empathetic. I think it's because I was raised by my mom and my sister. And I'm like the consummate people pleaser. So I always want to do what I, what I can to help make people's lives a little better, a little happier, whatever. You know, I've watched your career over all these many years, and uh, it, it, it has, it's had this interesting trajectory, you know, because you, you created an opportunity out of a personal passion. 
You didn't go to school for photography. You weren't professionally trained in any way. But this is pretty much, I think, your second or even third career. And I'm really kind of interested in trying to understand how you took that passion and an opportunity to transform it and how your past experiences, your 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 past career experiences allowed you to seize that opportunity because I think so many people have a similar chance at different points in their life. It's not it's not a singular thing that only happens once, but you were able to do it and to make it into something that is both creatively and financially viable and to my eye, I suspect very satisfying. So I'd like to hear more about the story behind all that. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I can look back and connect the dots now. There certainly wasn't any kind of a master plan. I looked like there's a master plan, but there wasn't. And right, I didn't study photography or never even read a book on it. We got a camera around 35, which is about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I'm 47 now. And before that, I was kind of in the IT world. My degree was in computer science and math and worked with Anderson Consulting. So I, I spent about five years there at CNN and I kind of got to know the way business works, you know, how middle management works, how decisions are made. Um, and then I jumped around to a few different businesses while consulting. And I saw oh, all businesses are pretty much alike. And so I, that's kind of, it's kind of like getting an MBA in a way, because I had to go in and really figure out how these businesses worked. And then we had to design software to, to make their business more efficient. So then I was just always, I kind of, my brain started to think a little bit like that, but I never, at, at night I would go home and write, like I wrote novels and stuff that never got published. I was always creative. There's always this little throb in the back of my head, like you're meant to do something else. You're meant to do something else. And when I finally uh, started, I started traveling a bit in my mid thirties because I had a, I was doing online games I'm still a big gamer. I had my own online game company. That was kind of fun to design a game. And we had a few studios around the world. And I was visiting a studio in Kuala Lumpur. I thought I should get a camera because it's beautiful and interesting. And I like traveling, I think. I should take some pictures. And then I took up, there's a beautiful sunset. I'll never forget it. And uh, it's all purple and gorgeous and crazy clouds. Um, And I looked at the photo and the photo was shit. <laughs> and I thought, how, how is this possible? Right? How can the sunset be so beautiful if my photo be so bad? Am I incompetent? Uh, probably. But this was like a D80 or something. It's like a big, expensive camera. It's like, what's going on? I actually, I kind of got angry. And I was like, why? Why does it look so different? Doesn't make sense. Is it me? What's going on? So then I kind of put on my computer science hat right? Coding and algorithms. And I thought, I wonder if there are any algorithms out there. If I treat this photo like a ball of data and not like as a, a photo, I wonder if I can manipulate it. And then I found there are these like HDR algorithms, which were only used by like uh, NASA to process uh, like Mars photos. So they could see like stuff. They could see more stuff. I thought, what happens if you run that on a sunset photo, and I did it, I was like, whoa, that is pretty trippy. And I was way over the top. You know what HDR used to be like, right? And I'm as guilt as anybody, but I thought it was kind of cool. And then I started really thinking about, okay, how does the eye work? You know, how does it compare to how a sensor works? How does your brain process light? This sort of thing. And at the same time, I had all these other various interests. I was really into like evolutionary biology and genetics and I read about all these weird things and then I just started assembling all this like okay I'm gonna start sharing everything I'm figuring out because I'm so excited about it I'm gonna give it away for free on my blog blog every day then I started thinking about you know, humans as a super organism how we connect and how we share you know humans have everything we need now so a bee I'm actually a beekeeper here in New Zealand I have some bees out there. I'm an extremely amateur beekeeper and it's just interesting to me the way bees can find food and they go back and they communicate where the food is. And now humans, we don't really need food or the, but we want information. We want to be entertained. So I thought, I wonder if I could somehow learn to replicate the way these superorganisms communicate with one another to share this new food source I found with the world. Cause I think it's so great. And I, th- I want everyone to get into this sport because it's fun. What you're talking about right now is something that's really shared a lot now with people who want to be, become entrepreneurs you know, they, they're, whether it's a podcast, a blog, or a YouTube channel, 
there's this idea that, okay, you, you do something you're really passionate about that you really love and you just share, start sharing this content for free on whatever medium that, you know, is appropriate for you. And then you build an audience and at some point you can turn that around and monetize it by providing paid content, premium content, whatever you want to call it. But at the time that you started doing this, that wasn't sort of the accepted norm. It was a more traditional way of thinking about building building a business. And I'm wondering whether to you, even though you were at the very beginnings of this, was this a really sort of obvious choice and obvious path for you to take photography and make it into something? No, it wasn't obvious. I had another job from the first two years where I was kind of making money, so I wasn't I was just doing it for the pure passion of it. And I never really had a plan to make money off of it. I just really enjoyed it. But some of the pictures started getting pretty popular and people started offering me a little bit of money. Like Lufthansa magazine would offer like a few thousand dollars for a photo. I was like, wow, people pay for photos. I never thought about it like that. Right. And so then I thought, well, that's interesting. Maybe if I did it full time, I could do something. And then I didn't really communicate with other photographers because in fact as far as i could tell 99 percent of the photography industry hated me the only i would put stuff up and like i would put up full res photos with no watermarks all creative commons which nowadays people do back then nobody did it i would tell everyone how i took the photos for free i had this hdr tutorial that's something else people didn't used to do now you can, everyone puts everything on YouTube. Everyone knows how to do everything, but it was a different world 12 years ago. And I didn't do it because I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm so wise. I did it because it felt natural. I've always been very in touch with what feels natural. I think like kids do what is naturally human. You know, my kids will sit there and, you know, make this paper on construction paper, this uh, drawing of this house, put glitter. They love it. Then they run around and share it with everyone in the house. And there's no ego involved. And I think that's sort of the natural way. And a lot of times money and business really fights against that and kind of have to, it's a a very unnatural marriage of these two things. So then uh, we started selling more and more and started dedicating more time to it. And finally a program came out that helped people with HDR that wasn't like this command line thing, it was photomatics. So I started recommending the software and this is even like really kind of before affiliates really. So this lady, she was nice. She lived in France and I said, Hey, how about if I link to your $99 software, if I get a percentage, because I think I'm sending you a lot of traffic. I don't really know. She's like, okay. And we did that. And then it was making a little bit of money. And I think we passed like a hundred thousand dollars in a year. I was like, wow, it's pretty easy uh, and fun. It wasn't easy. It was fun. It's kind of like a little bit of a game, you know, and I knew uh, people, it, people were loving the software. People were getting really into it. People started posting HDR images on Flickr and then I go, man, it's going pretty well. And then I emailed her and I said, Hey, how about 50%? Let's do a little bump from 15 to 50%. I figured, what would she say? Said, no, I don't care. And she said, yes. Well, all right. And it started making like, I don't know, two or a quarter million dollars a year just off that, that affiliate thing. And then we would make a little bit of money off of sales. But then affiliate stuff started to change. I started, uh, I did my first uh, workshop and then I I made this really shitty little HDR how-to video. And even back then, this is just seven years ago, we had to make DVDs. We had to print DVDs and like put little stickers on them and like mail them, mail them to people. And so that was my first HDR tutorial and I started selling well. And then I, I kind of developed a weird teaching style, I guess. I, I, think, I think I'm a lot like you in that mostly what I talk about is creativity and passion and inspiration and just a little bit about the technical stuff. Technical stuff is pretty easy, but you, you don't want to get caught up in that because you know, photography atta- attracts very clever people and clever people sometimes can go off and start talking about all the technical stuff and focal ranges and all this happy horseshit. But I'm... I'm all about the creativity and fun, the fun aspect of it. You know, that's where I, and I really, I really, and over time, like my, my fundamental mission has generally been to help spread consciousness through meditative arts like photography. Cause I think photography is like a meditation and I think it's ultimately good for the world. The more people you get to chill out, calm down, take some photos, just create anything. So that's, that's the underlying thing. And then, so that drives everything I do. And then on top of that, we come in and we start putting our little business hat 
And now we have like five or six revenue new streams is totally shifted. Affiliates is like 5% of our income now because that, that whole, everything changes, right? Life has changed. But now we're doing like a lot of fine art, like giant prints to collectors. And that's the biggest piece of our buy. But God, I don't know what I'm doing. We, we, we come with new stuff every year. We try new projects. Uh, half of them fail. We just keep trying new stuff that seems fun and kind of feeds that central mission. A lot of those choices that you made early on made you the subject of a lot of vitriol. Um, first off, it was just the, this HCR look that you were promoting quite heavily and that a lot of other people were adopting. A lot of people just did not like the look. They didn't like the technique. They didn't think it was photography. The fact that you were giving out free content and you weren't charging for it and that you were distributing it through a Creative Commons license. This and a lot of other things made you subject to a lot of lot of criticism. And you know, a lot of people are very hesitant to put themselves out there in a variety of different ways, but especially creatively, because they don't want to be the subject of that kind of criticism. And I'm wondering, what was it about you and your personality that allowed you to sort of kind of deflect that? Yes, I have analyzed this, and I... I see the, the matrix and I, you can stop me because I could talk forever about this. And when I say this, it's going to be totally obvious to you and everyone else. But the problem is the ego, always the problem. And I have learned this through meditation the past eight or nine years, just by walking alone in Iceland by myself, creating. Because when, when you're creating, I, I was coming as two paths, one studying sort of, Eastern Zen philosophy and the other just through photography because I knew that I was just the happiest and most content when I was just wandering around a countryside with a camera, maybe listening to some music because you're fully present. There's no past you're worried about. There's no future you're vexed about. And of course, that's all what the ego is concerned about all the time. But when you're creating, you're in this pure egoless state. And then through my studies, I started to realize that, hey, Trey, you know what? You're not the thoughts in your head. You're the silence behind the thoughts. You just watch the thoughts go by. They're just things like a, like clouds or a tree. And you never look at a cloud and say, that's an ugly cloud. Or, that's an ugly tree. They're all fine. You kind of do the same things for your thoughts. You just let them go by. And this is a wonderful state to be in. And so once you are able to let go of yourself and see like, oh, that self doesn't exist. It's just a little egoistic story that you tell yourself. Then you lead an absolutely fearless life because nothing will bother you. No complaint will bother you. Nothing will stick in there. You'll notice it. And maybe some people do have some points or something, and so you can have a little self-reflection there. But I think it just comes, when you just let go of yourself and stop taking yourself so seriously, uh, you are fearless. And uh, there's just nothing that can affect you. And then you just become your true, natural, expressive self. And you can express yourself in many ways, even if you're not very sure about what you're expressing, I don't like, I'm not completely sure about a hundred percent of everything I put out or everything I write or share, but I do it anyway. Cause I'm just, I'm, I'm not afraid. And I know it's, it's the natural state. And then I look at, and we don't have to call them photographers, any industry. There's a lot of upset people in any industry. And a lot of it is stems from the ego because they take themselves seriously. They think they should be doing this. This other person should be doing that. Uh, people should be treating me like this. I can't believe what that person did. I mean, just this long list of complaints. And a complaint is always something that bothers you, right? And anything that bothers, like you just have stuff coming to your brain all day, right? Stuff you see, stuff you hear. Every now and then something will bother you. You're like, oh. But almost everything else flows through. Like you're driving down the road, street signs are going past. Those don't bother you. Like you, you see so much stuff every day, but a little bit of it gets stuck in there. It starts to bother you. And then really what's happening is stuff is getting stuck on this egoic construct that you, your ego has built this story that you're telling yourself. And when things go counter that story, you're like, oh, that's not, that's not right. And then you, you get all a little upset about it. Right. And then that uses up some of your energy, which you could be using for, for creative activities. And I, I literally go the entire day without being bothered by a thing. And it's wonderful. I've got so much energy. I go the whole week without being bothered by anything. And sometimes I see stuff that maybe I, I wouldn't do or I wouldn't go for, but I just kind of accept it. You know, acceptance is the opposite of complaining. And uh, so I just, I don't get caught up in the, in the negativity. 
You know, I think if you see that on Facebook, right? Negativity attracts neg- negativity. And generally happy people aren't on there, right? Because, you know, everything's going pretty well. But these other, everyone likes to complain because it just reinforces each other's egoic constructs. A lot of times you get two people together complaining. They're like, can you believe what this person did to me? And the other person says, oh, yeah? Well, what do you just listen to what this person did to me? And so they're just kind of like building up this, just this little upset thing that's going on. And it's, I think it's poisonous. It's not good. The opposite is just acceptance and love and fearlessness. And it's, it's a great life. That's interesting because to my thinking, the path to acceptance, though an ideal one can be very, very difficult because what has to happen is that you have to have a certain level of understanding of not only the circumstances, but about your own thinking. And one of the things that I'm picking up about you in the brief conversation that we've had thus far is the idea is that you're a person who likes figuring things out. It seems like you're the kind of person who really enjoys like a puzzle. And so what I'm wondering is, is that inclination to try and figure things out, how one one thing connects to another and to another and to another, does that tendency in you to want to understand things and figure things out does it pose a problem when it comes to accepting things on at an emotional level on a you know on a mental level how's that work for you um no i think because i was able to build a, a mental model of the world that seemed to fit with my worldview. Now I still see, I, 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 some things pop up and like try to bother me. I'll show you a very apropos example. We just finished this five day deal thing that we did with a bunch of other creators and other photographers. And, uh, I, I know most of them and I like them, you know, all great people and that sort of thing. But then, you know, the way that the money stuff works out, they have these inscrutable formulas for like profit sharing and stuff. And so like me and Curtis work on the math. We're like, this isn't right. You know, it's something, maybe there's a fly in the soup. What's going on here? And so, but I just accept it. I'm not like, oh, hey, they're trying to screw me. Maybe they're not. I'm like, hey, this is what we see. What do you see? I don't get angry about it. I'm like, let's just, let's just figure it out. Like a couple of grownups. And uh, I, I find that if, if at least one side in any uh, argument is conscious and chilled out then it makes everything go well i mean you know the same things happen with my wife my wife complaining all the time you know really upset trying to pull me into arguments i don't i don't get sucked into them it doesn't bother me you know i'm always nice and respectful but it's it's a nice it's a really a nice way to live um and i do like figuring things out i think it's kind of fun and, but i'm also open-minded like maybe i don't have such, such and such figured out i'm always willing to hear better evidence i i was really turned into this by this guy named uh, Richard Feynman, who's a physicist, he has all these great books. And uh, one of them that really confirmed this for me is called The Pleasure of Finding Things Out. And it was kind of just like, you know, it's just kind of a fun little mental game to kind of try to figure stuff out, you know, come figure out people. I love figuring out people. It's I think it's a pretty good skill that I have if I can kind of meet someone and kind of figure them out really fast. I might be wrong, but I'm generally pretty good at it because... Like, I think all my energy is just open. I'm like drinking them in. And I'm, I'm accepting of all people, you know, of course. Uh, I'm wrong 1% of the time, but I, I do kind of enjoy it. It's, uh, it's nice to have a, a brain that works like that because I, um, I'm, I'm still wrong a lot, but I, I learn by being, by being wrong. And it makes life a little bit easier when you can kind of see the patterns and the ways in which the world and which people move. So how has this philosophy that you've developed influenced or changed or transformed how you see in your practice photography? Uh, It has had very subtle effects, I think. Um, I've always been attracted to what's beautiful and interesting. And I'm I'm a very positive kind of dude. And if anything, it has made me less worried about taking good photos (laughs) I, you know, now I go out by myself or with my friends and just take photos and with like zero expectations. And it's kind of like people that love to fish, right? I don't love to fish and I don't get it. I've been fishing a lot of times and I find it boring. It's kind of pretty and I don't, 
you know, I guess there's some sport to it or there's all this stuff, you know, like not really for me, but some people love fishing and the people that really love fishing, they don't care if they catch any fish at all. They'll just go out there and fish. What's the same way with photography for me. I still have, you know, I'm friends with lots of photographers and some are pretty caught up. They're like, Oh, if, you know, I got to go to this place. If I don't get something that goes into my portfolio, it's going to be a disaster. They put all this pressure on themselves. I'm not like that. I was like, Hey, maybe something good will come out. Maybe it won't just, you just show up with a good attitude and that gets you through that. And it pretty much gets you through all life enthusiasm and showing up. Well, I kind of relate to what you're talking about because in, in my practice uh, as a, as a street photographer, I'm really into the moment. Mm -hmm. And that is often about me sort of putting aside my own objective judgments of what I'm seeing and really trying to be in the moment. Right. And it's, it's really kind of interesting because I can, I can find myself in, in a space mm. where when I'm making photographs, when I'm being creative, that I'm not so much concerned about what's behind me or what's in front of me. And that I'm so present that the smallest of details are revealed to me. And there's a certain enjoyment that I take away from that, that, that those moments of discovery where I see something that if I was preoccupied with my own thoughts, with my own feelings, with my own, you know, whatever, that I would never be able to catch because I was just too filled with all those, all that distracting noise in my head. And when I hear you talking, it's really interesting to think that, that this chaos, in whatever way it manifests itself in our lives, in our creativity, can be surmounted by by just the choice to be creative and consequently to be completely present. Absolutely. And I think you, you definitely grok it. And it's good that you found your happy place with street photography because that's a perfect example of being fully present and fully aware because there's so much stuff going on around you. You have to have your, your spidey senses totally open. And you probably see things in slow motion and you see things happening. You're predicting where people are going to be. Where's the light going to be? Where's that shadow going to hit in the next two seconds? And so like, you're just fully there. There's no time for you to worry about something stupid. You said when you're a teenager to a girl, there's no time for you to worry about like, Oh my God, I, I got to pay my taxes. I, I'm a little late on filling out those stupid taxes and I don't know where that tax. Was. You're not thinking about any of that shit. Cause you're just, you're fully there. I think it's perfect. And I don't think it's just for photography. I think it could be for creating anything. It'd be for, uh, you know, baking, be a chef. I think you're just fully aware of what's happening in the kitchen all the time. Uh, uh, writing, uh, there's a whole myriad of things. So that's, you know, I th it's very hard to teach people meditation. It's very difficult. But I think that everyone does like to create. And I think that's a good sideways way. Because with all the chaos in the world, these are all people that get way too caught up in their own heads and then they get groups caught up into it. And if we could just get all these people to create and chill the fuck out, it'd be much better for the planet. It's really amazing to think that an idea that came to me while stuck in L.A. traffic has become this thing that you know as the candor frame. I've had a lot of wonderful ideas in my life, but few manifested themselves in the real world. And each week, when I hear from people who tell me what a difference this show has made in their lives, I am both humbled and in awe. When I started this show, podcast hadn't even become a thing yet. There were a few shows out there, but not the tens of thousands that are out there now. It amazes me that we're still here after almost 13 years and that we reach thousands of people all over the world every week. And I attribute that success not just to my own effort. There are a lot of people who have contributed so much to the show, not least of which is my wife, my editor, Martin Taylor, and the hundreds of photographers who have graciously appeared on the show. And it's been people like you who have spread the word, and most recently those of you who have joined our Patreon effort. 
you're helping us to reach our goal of 100 new supporters. And when I tell you that you have and do make a difference, I sincerely mean that. Your contributions this month alone helped us to contend with some unexpected financial challenges, which were made a little more manageable because of your generosity. When you contribute as little as $5 a month, you are ensuring that I can dedicate my time to the production of the show, which includes finding and conducting research on guests, recording interviews, writing scripts, and editing. This requires time, and you provide me that with your regular contribution. So if you haven't already, please take the time today to become a Patreon contributor for as little as $5 a month. You help us ensure that the candid frame remains here for years to come and that it only gets better. Thanks. In your role as a teacher, it's especially with respect to photography, it's it's a real challenge to move beyond, you know, the shutter speed, the aperture, the ISO, the the, the pixel pushing that happens when you're trying to instruct photography and you're trying to get from the mechanics of photography into the create creative side of photography. Uh, it's a difficult transition to make, whether you're a photographer, you know, whether you're just someone creating pictures. And it's it's another thing to be the teacher who's trying to convey something that is incredibly personal, but also relatively subjective um, in terms of personal and a personal creative experience. So how do you sort of surmount that? Um, I, I've always been a little bit of a weird duck, and I don't even really know much about how other photography teachers teach or or what they teach. And... You know, when we did our first workshop, I I never been to a workshop. I don't know how they work. I still haven't been any any. Not that I'm against it. I just don't. And so we started experimenting with our workshops, and they've been quite transformational. I mean, I, you're gonna think I'm crazy, but so we have one every year here in New Zealand, and then on the last night, we often bring everyone over to my home here. We have a little catered meal outside, and people are talking about breakthroughs they've had in the week. Cause I kind of talk like this all week. We do, we do like technical stuff, you know, we're in a dark room and I'm showing them how to use Aurora HDR and all that stuff. But then inevitably at that last night, everybody's crying. They're talking about these, you know, emotional breakthroughs they've made. There's been something fucked up in their regular life, you know, it's gone through a divorce or, you know, everyone has struggles. All struggles are real and everyone's struggling. Often not even with photography, just like getting through life. I think when they start to see and apply this kind of more like Zen approach to creating beautiful things with photography, they see like, oh, you know, these are these are lessons I can apply to my real life, too. And it does make the rest of life easier. I think especially when you have a creative pursuit like this. Um, but it's I also am very sensitive that other photographers are just have different uh, revenue paths than I do. Like, I don't ever have clients. I might have a brand sponsorship, but the one exception is I one time Aaron New Zealand asked me if I would go take photos for him. And I had just moved here. I was like, yeah, you guys are cool. I'll do that. And they paid me, but so I don't do client work or anything. And I, I do know that sometimes it's hard to be zenned out while you're like, Oh man, we got to book 15 weddings for the third quarter. And you know, there's just like all these like real life business pressures that collide with the art, purely artistic side of doing art. Um, and that, that's a, uh, I know that's a conflict that a lot of people have. If you can ever have a, a separation, so like one person could just be like the artiste, you know, they're kind of flowy. And the other person does all the business stuff, figures out, then then you still can do, have that kind of thing and, and be a little bit more zen out. So I, I'm sensitive that my, my little philosophy is not applicable to everybody. You talked about earlier how you turned to the computer to learn how to improve your, your photography, or at least the way they, they looked. But over the years, you've been taking a lot, a lot of photographs all over the world and working with different photographers with different styles and sensibilities. And in those intervening years, how has the way you see influenced not only how you make pictures in the moment, but how you post-process and when you're in front of the computer? I think every year I become more aware 
of what I'm seeing and what it means. You know, you were talking about being a street photographer and everything's kind of chaotic, not necessarily chaotic to you, but it, it is like that. Same way when you're walking in nature, I mostly do landscapey stuff, but it is kind of chaotic and it's not too different than the day. You're just a day, even without photography, there's just confusion all day long. Most of my day is confusion. Like, how do I respond to this email? Uh, what should I eat for lunch? Should I have another cup of coffee? I mean, just like nonstop confusion with no clear answers, right? But every now and then, like during the day, a few things click and you're like, ah, okay, I see the truth. I got it. Something made sense today. Yay. I made something beautiful today. Yay. And it's the same kind of way when you're out taking photos. It's all chaos. But every now and then you can zone in on the truth, right? Oh, there's the truth. The way those trees are there, or the way that little cabin is, or that like perfect horse, something, right? It's like, oh, like now I see it. And so that's, I'm, I'm better at seeing the truth now when I'm out and about, because it's like a, it's like a muscle that you, you learn over time. Uh, like find, finding out what is separating, what is interesting uh, from what is uninteresting. Uh, I call it like a interesting muscle, right? This is something that you or do. So, so then you stop wasting so much time on stuff that is uninteresting. And uh, I think, and then that's a lesson that you can apply to your, to your real life. So I think that's, I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things that I think I used to think like, okay, I, I'm this one, I have two lives. I have like my life when I'm not taking photos and my life when I'm taking photos and processing photos. But then I started to realize it's all one life. It's all the same. So now I think of it as a contiguous whole rather than two separate things. So how do you manage the time? Because, you know, you have your hands in a lot of different things, all of which demand your your attention in terms of your family, in terms of your business, in terms of your photography. And that, I think for everybody, can be a very difficult thing to juggle because as much as you want and have a desire to be creative, there are other things that have to happen in your life. Yeah. So how do you do it? What, what kind of choices do you have to make to ensure that you have the opportunities to be creative, to get into that Zen-like state as a process of making photographs? It can't be easy, especially since you have a business as big as yours. What are the choices that you need to make? There's, I think there's three things that are impossible to schedule for well. One is having a baby. Two is taking a vacation. And three is making time to take photos. Because there's never a good time for any of it. Because you can always make a case, let's wait one more year before we have a baby. Then we'll have more money. We'll be more stable. And you get there like, let's wait one more year. You can, so humans are not good at, at planning these important things. Same with a vacation. You're like, oh my God, what is it now? It's 2018. Like, should I plan a vacation for September of 2019? 11 months. But that seems ridiculous, right? It seems ridiculous. Say like, oh, I'm going to set aside a week. Because it, it also seems a little selfish. Like, I should probably be working. That's not talking about vacation. And same with, with photo time is I do schedule it. Um, like I, after burning, so I schedule Burning Man every year, two weeks blocked out, no matter what, going. And it's always inconvenient. It's always expensive. And I'm thinking, like, why am I going through all this trouble? But after eight years in a row, I feel just as strongly as ever that I know when I'm out there, it's a magical stuff happens. Uh, really cool events. A lot of stuff I don't even take photos of because I don't have my camera. Amazing drugs. Incredible people. It's just wild. And I know it's great. And a mind-expanding experience has really informed me. But then after that, I planned a, a one-week hike across Spain. Uh, like a photo hike. And I went with all these like philosophers and authors and we would have these erudite conversations as we walked around and kind of took a photo. Um, so, you know, I just try to block off a week or a few days and just like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go off and maybe I'll take a good photo. Maybe I won't. And then, and I preload the blog before that. I get all the businessy stuff out of the way. I've always got to, to do list. I'm sure you're like me though when you run your own thing, you have an infinite to-do list. It just is always there. You've got, you've got high priority must do medium priority and low priority. And someday you'll just sit there and like knock off the low priority stuff because it's easy and you don't really want to do the high stuff. I mean, it's the same for me as anyone else. But if I just sit in front of my computer here in the studio, 
I'll, I've got like 40 start emails I have to answer. Some are important. Like there are these orphans in Indonesia that I was with. Um, and I've got all these photos and I'm trying to get them to this other place so they can write a story about these orphans. And I've been sitting on that for about a week. So, you know, there's just stuff to do. And um, you got to schedule time for yourself. It's important. We talked earlier about how people can reinforce their negative, toxic ideas or, or opinions with other people. They'll, they'll look for someone to affirm that. But the opposite is also true with respect to who you choose to have around you when you're trying to maintain a, a more positive mindset. And in your role as as a business owner, as a blogger, and you know all the all the ways that you connect with people in which you're serving other people, it can be even more difficult to find people who are not making demands of you, but who are contributing to you and your life in a way that's nurturing and not draining. And it can be really difficult when you uh, have accumulated or earned a certain level of fame and recognition and, and basically expectations. So for you, who are the kind of people that you have in your life and why are they important to you? Uh, I think it is a good idea for anyone to slowly remove the energy vampires from their life. All of my best friends, they're just positive, happy people that don't complain. Probably one of my best is Renee Smith. He's a photographer here and from New Zealand, and he's my roommate at Burning Man. Just a funny guy. And never heard him complain about a thing. Funny, makes me laugh. Calm, supportive, you know, quietly supportive and accepting, non-judgmental. I mean, it's amazing to be surrounded by non-judgmental people that fully accept and love you all the time, no matter what. And they know all the weird, you know, scoundrel stuff about you or bad. They don't care. They just love you anyway. It's perfect. And the other element I find is I want, I need to be surprised, especially to be made laugh. And I, I think this is great. Uh, very, very important. Um, but I, you know, I have all kinds of people in my life. Like yesterday, I went to go visit a friend who is very depressed. I went over to his home and he's kind of all locked in there. I'm super depressed. And he's older than me, quite a bit older than me. He's not suicidal, but he's almost suicidal. And so, you know, I spent several hours with him just kind of talking. I'm not a therapist or anything, but I'm very non-judgmental accepting. And he's a brilliant guy, a great writer, really smart, really kind, uh, good heart. Uh, he's just, he's just down in the dump. I mean, there's, there is, there is bad stuff that's happened. And so I shared a story with him and I said, look, uh, let me tell you about my experience and maybe you can inform yours. And I said, this is, I, I don't want the honest to be turned off by this, but this is honestly the conversation I have with them. I said, look, you, you and I are very intellectual people, right? We're very clever. And that can tend to something called nihilism. As you, as you walk around the world and you just, you start to think that everything in the world is shit, right? The world is chaos. You're depressing. Um, you feel like, what's the point of it all? This happens to a lot of intellectuals, Anthony Bourdain and so many people, they become nihilist. And it's frustrating because um, it can be a very negative thing. And I said, I went through a bit of a fugue period uh, a couple years ago because my wife had uh, cancer. She had the same kind that Steve Jobs had, uh, neuroendocrine tumors. And so I was dealing with that and having to take care of the kids and handle work and make appearances, do all kinds of stuff. And I was getting kind of depressed, I think. Mostly nihilistic, like intellectually nihilistic, and like, the world is shit. You know, what's, what's all this for? Yeah, maybe I make some pretty photos, it makes some people happy, but it doesn't matter, big deal. Uh, most of everything is just chaos and entropy. And so I was, I remember, I'll never forget it, I, I had done a lot of research, like, I knew what nihilism is. I, I was like, what is the opposite of nihilism? I did like a lot of philosophical research, like, what is the opposite? And th there is no opposite. There is no opposite of it. So I thought, how do you cure it? 
I don't know, like maybe it was like a kind of like a, a, you know, a philosophical mind disease. So I mean, how do you cure this little mind disease? And I was kind of desperate to do it. I remember I was in Denver, Colorado. We're visiting one of my wife's specialists there who specializes in NETs. And I'm relaying this whole story to my friend, you know, he's kind of listening. And I said, I remember I was walking down the street with her and it was like a pedestrian street in Denver. And I, you know, when you're getting a little nihilistic, when you're just looking around at you and like, you see like, I like, Oh my God, look at all these zombies here in America. They're walking around. They have empty stairs. They're shuffling their feet. They look lazy. There's no life in them. And then I would like look over, I'd be passing like all these chain stores and I would see like a subway. There'd be like zombies inside making sandwiches and people standing in line on their lunch hour as like, Wait, what is this for? This is not living. This is shit. And then I was getting more and more nihilistic. I was like, because oh, everything you see starts to reinforce this nihilism. Like, oh God, what's it all for? And, but down this pedestrian street in Denver, they had all these really colorful pianos, right? They're all painted differently. And out of nowhere, this really tall black guy comes out with this bright red zoot suit on and this crazy hat. And it kind of reminded me like, man, black guys get away with her anything. They look amazing. He strides across there, plops down on the bench and starts belting out this amazing tune on the piano. It was beautiful. His hands were all over the place. He was dancing. And I went over there. I was just completely transfixed. And it made me realize that's when I got it. That's when I got it. I was like, this is the opposite of nihilism. This is the, the answer, the antidote to nihilism and it's creativity. Because as, as you create, it puts all that fog outside of you. And so, and I found, I was thinking like during this whole period where I was dealing with my wife's stuff, I just wasn't creating very much. And it made me realize that creative people have to create. And if you're creative and smart, it leads to a nihilism thing and you're not using your creativity. So it's like, buddy, you got to get back into creating. Just do a little bit every day. You're so good at it. Keep it up. Force yourself to create, and that keeps the that keeps the nihilism at bay. Uh, you know that's a lesson that I learned, and so now I create a little bit every day. Most of my creations are still shit, but every now and then they come out okay. But I just enjoy the creative process, uh, no matter what. And I found that's been a very important element uh, into putting into my daily cycle. That's great. You know, one of the things about being creative is the desire not only just to make something but to stretch oneself, to learn something, not just about the process or even how you see, but maybe even something about yourself. Because the more that you learn about yourself, the more you question about yourself, the, the greater possibilities happen with respect to creating and making photographs in this case. So tell me about that part of your journey. I would say the, the perfect shining example is going to, to Burning Man. Before I went to Burning Man eight years ago, I thought, I don't want to go to this place, all these hippies, hedonism, all this junk. I don't, what does it, very judgmental of me. I went, I was wrong. And what I thought I saw from the outside as hedonism, I saw as just a easy sense of self-expression from these people, people just expressing themselves without ego. They're not like, hey, look at me, aren't I amazing? They're just like being awesome. We all know people that are just awesome all the time and they just have an open heart. They're totally vulnerable and they're just awesome. You know, you just enjoy being with them and watch them. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I was kind of on that path already, but it's definitely accelerated me down that path. And I knew that all these things go together, uh, having an open heart, being vulnerable and being totally open to new experiences. Like all these things go together. And of course this means being ready to be totally uncomfortable, right? Um, you, you've got to put yourself into uncomfortable situations all the time because that really does, it really does help you grow. And even better, a secret side benefit of putting yourself in uncomfortable situations is you get used to them. You get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that makes all of life easier because life is constant change. You're always uncomfortable with things that happen in your real life. And so you just start to be like the dolphin that swims in the waves. You know, everything is, everything is fine. And so by stimulating myself 
at Burning Man, putting myself in very uncomfortable situations. Uh, you never know what you're going to see next. Everything is a surprise. Um, you just kind of learn to accept like, you know, what comes at you in life. And it's also, I find it's like so stimulated by, by traveling or, or meeting new people, um, by having as much stuff come into my eyes, ears, everything, um, makes, uh, uh, it's, it's really changed me. So now I, I like crave it. I crave maximum stimulation as much as possible. And then I like to have the yang on that by just having some, some quiet times of reflection so I can process, not just post-process my photos, but process everything that's come into me over the last X amount of days or minutes. Your Burning Man shots are very dramatic. Color, the action, the gestures that are provided by the, the many people that you photographed and the art installations that are there. There's a lot of drama there. And in contrast, your landscape images tend to be you know, relatively quiet, as is the nature of, of those kinds of images. But I wonder, what's the connective tissue between the two? When you take a look at those photographs that are very different in terms of subject matter, what's the linchpin? What is the connective tissue between those two types of photographs? Yeah, the commonality to me is that we live in a, just an interesting, beautiful world. And there's really no natural difference between a beautiful landscape and a, you know, a few you know, beautiful people doing acro yoga in the middle of the desert while one guy's pouring champagne into another guy's mouth. It's just like, wow, what a world. You know, how does a world create all this stuff? And I think that's it. I mean, I'm such a positive, uh, such a positive outlook, positive outlook on everything. And I want people to also have that positive outlook because there's way too much uh, negativity out there. I mean, you watch the news, it's just full of shit because the, the news makes money out of scaring people causing groupism saying, can you believe what this one group did to another group? Like, yeah. And then like, we'll tell you more about what happened to this group when we come back from commercial break. And like, that one is all this, all this stupid clickbait negative stuff on Facebook. And my goodness, it's ridiculous and it's poisonous. So the, the world needs more, more beauty in it. I think now this, this sounds absolutely solipsistic, but I think it's up to artists and creatives to save the world. I don't think, you know, corporations are really going to do it. I don't think government's going to do it. And I know just I've had impact on people, some people, uh, but I'm not special. Anyone could do what I do. I'm just curious enough. I have an open heart. I think there needs to be a lot more people like me and you out there, right? These people didn't have these conversations 20 years ago, 100 years ago. You know, and now we've got these tremendous platforms like with your show and the internet. And so, you know, it's up to us uh, to, to show. And I guess that's what I try to do with my photos is show how beautiful um, the world and how beautiful people really are. Have you recently had one of those pinch myself moments recently? And by that, I mean a moment where you're actively in the moment of being creative, of being present, and you just realized, wow, I'm doing this thing, whatever it was. Have you had a, a moment like that recently that you could share with us? You know, I, I do. It's, uh, it's a good question because it's sometimes good to get reminded that you're doing interesting, good stuff for the world. It happens at Burning Man and a lot of other places is that sometimes people will come up to me who well, I don't know, you know, maybe they've seen a show like this and they go, oh my God, Trey, that thing you said, it was really, it made a lot of sense. It's really kind of fucked up my life and made my life better. And then they'll give me a hug. Sometimes I'll be crying and just like, I like immediately have some of the deepest conversations with randos that I meet because they already know all about me and I'm predisposed to like them, right? Because if they're open to these kind of messages or whatever, um, and I'm like, wow, you know, these, these randos are walking up to me and this is really changing things up. It's good. It's good. And it kind of, so a lot of times I sit here and I write, I talk to you, I just kind of bloviate about this or that. I'm like, I don't know if anyone understands any what the fuck I'm talking about or maybe it doesn't even make any sense. Maybe I'm completely self-deluded. But then people come up and they're like, you're exactly right. And I'm like, yeah, I am exactly right. Right. And then it kind of reminds me to keep on keeping on. 
and just keep on having an open heart and not be afraid and, and share these things. And I don't have it all figured out. I think that we're all in this together. It's not a fixed pie. You know, the pie is always growing. I, I'm the opposite. I think there's a lot of photographers thinking like, oh, if one guy gets that, that means I can't have this. That's a very old way of thinking. You know, now we, we live in a world of infinities. There's more than enough for everyone, especially if we all work together and then kind of move the needle uh, on the entire world. Because um, like creatives, I love hanging out with creative people. The more, the better. But you notice that some people in the creative community can be quite destructive. And I don't think that's a good element. It doesn't help anybody. It's definitely not good for either the industry and on a larger scale, the entire world. So, you know, just, you know, keep it creative and positive, you know, it's good. Well, absolutely. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, man, oh, man. Now, there's so many good photographers nowadays. I will, in terms of that, I will say something that I could be depressing to people. I don't mean it to be, but it's true. But, you know, if you look at Instagram, 500px, it appears that now everybody is a genius photographer. And they are. There are so many good photographers now. It is unbelievable. I mean, go to 500px and look at the top ones every day. Every, any one of those, I would look down my portfolio. And they're made by some... 16 year old kid in Slovenia, you know, and this guy is a genius. There are, there are so many good photographers and it's uh, it's no longer a differentiating factor to take a good photo. That doesn't, it doesn't matter. That is not, it, that doesn't matter. I think really what matters is the, uh, you know, the storytelling and, and doing something a little different, but t- talking more about, you know, maybe yourself and your own journey or helping other people, but having said all that, a photographer I'll recommend to your audience that they might not know is a guy named Edward Curtis. He's an old timer. I think it was like over a hundred years ago. And, you know, just film, wet plates, all that kind of stuff that I don't really understand. But he would go live with these uh, Native American uh, tribes. And he got the craziest photos of these people. I don't know how he did it and just the color grading and the detail and just the storytelling and the image. I'm like, man, this guy is the real deal. It makes me feel like a hack because I just run around with my little digital camera taking photos of this and that. I mean, this guy, he was hardcore. So I really, I have a lot of respect for these old timers that carry on all that stuff, did stuff the hard way, the slow craft. How, how long would it take to learn uh, about aperture if you're using a wet plate, you'd be like, well, I fucked that one up. I guess I got to wait two more weeks. Try it again. It's ridiculous. How did they do it? Anyway, Edward Curtis, Google that guy. He's cool. That's a great recommendation. And that's going way back to, you know, I actually had the opportunity to actually see some original Prince of Curtis. Whoa. Um, and this was some years ago. Oh, yeah. A friend of mine works at the Huntington Library, and he was archiving uh, a lot of those images. So uh, I had a chance to look at the prints, and that was really uh, an exciting right moment for me. But I think it's a great recommendation. And Trey, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time and uh, appearing on, on the show. I so much appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for all the good questions and your patience. And let's do it again sometime. Thanks to Trey for accepting my invitation to appear on the show. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting stuckincustoms.com. And I've also recently released two books. The first is an ebook, Lessons from the Street. It's about some of the mistakes that I made as a photographer and how they made me a better photographer. It's just $7 and you can purchase it directly from the website. And my follow-up to my first book, Chasing the Light, is now available for purchase. It's called Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow. If you feel stuck or struggling with making good images on a consistent basis, this book is for you. It goes beyond the correct settings on your camera and helps you to see with a critical and creative eye. You can order and download the ebook right now or place a pre-order for the softcover, which comes out in December. 
When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code Borello40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website in the show notes for the link. And once you read it, please write a review as it helps me to spread the word. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. We also love the reviews people write about us in the iTunes store because they help us spread the word. So if you haven't done it, please do. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Jason Randolph, Kent Johansson, Josh Germaning, Nikon Camera Act, Thomas Nilsson, and Sally Coggle for their recent contributions. I really appreciate it. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbadianX. And this is IbadianX, and this is The Candid Frame.